afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet and I'm here in the studio. Well, Jeremy's with me and Scott Pogensey is here uh, to talk blood, murder, wrong, <laughs> wrongly convicted uh, person. We just figured good Christmas show. I was going to say a great subject on Christmas. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming, Scott. Absolutely. Um, there is some good news, though. Mm -hmm. in this case. And we'll talk about the case in case you haven't been following it. It's a case we've been following for, what, maybe five years now? Yeah. Something like that. 2017 is when I started doing the documentary. Yeah, yeah. So, but what is the good news? Well, the good news is that the Innocence Project of Texas is involved in the case and that they are uh, uh, tracking down some, some good information. Do we know Finally. what any of that information is? We do not. Uh, the investigators and the attorneys and everybody that work for Brandon on the Innocence Project of Texas are very uh, tight-lipped because they don't want anything getting out just in case, you know, the prosecution hears about it because anything that they present, they want it to be basically a surprise when they present it in court. Otherwise, the prosecution, you know, it's kind of like giving away your playbook and when you're, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, not that they would ever do that. <coughs> Uh, <laughs> hey, the Cowboys won yesterday. Yes, they yes. did. <laughs> so yeah, no, they don't. They keep everything close to the vest, just because you know they don't. They don't want uh, anyone getting uh, a heads up on what they're going to file. So anything that they find um, through their investigation, I do know that there is a private investigator that is donating their time to uh, to Brandon's case specifically. So they are actively working specifically on this case. Let me give yes. you a couple of statistics about um, the Innocence Project. Uh, since they were founded in 2006... Of 20, Texas. Uh, uh, Innocence <laughs> Project of Texas, right. So these are all Texas cases. Yes. Um, 27 people have been freed mm -hmm. from prison who had been uh, previously convicted. That's a total of 358 years lost. Yeah. That they spent in prison. How long has Brandon yeah. been in prison? Uh, right now, 17 years. 17 years. Mm. Yeah. Um, here's their estimate, though. 3,000 to 9,000 people in Texas have been wrongly convicted and are now serving sentences. Yeah. As many as 9,000 people. Yeah. Because if you think about it, you know, it, it, you ask most people, say, how many... How many defendants do you think are actually guilty? How many of them are innocent? And most people will say, I don't know, about 5%, 10% maybe. And you're like, okay, well, let's, let's just dumb that down. Let's just say it's 1% of all the people that are in prison. And most people, oh, yeah, I'm sure it's much more than that. Well, when you start looking at there's, you know, 200 or 2.2 million people in the United States that are incarcerated, even just 1% of that is, you know, 22,000 people. Hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> and Texas has more and, and, people oh yeah, Texas. incarcerated than any other state. Uh, and that's just, like I said, that's just conservative estimates. A lot of people do say that it is about 5%, you know, between 5 and 10%. So, so that would be 100,000 people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. And it's, and, and it's not just people that go to trial that are convicted that are innocent. A lot of it is people that, you know, let's say that you... Let's say you're accused of a horrific crime, like sexual assault, right? And the prosecution comes to you and says, well, you know, we think we can convict you. 
And, you know, if you do, if you get convicted, you're probably going to get five to 99 years. And, you know, juries don't like sex offenders. So you're probably going to get 80 to 90 years. Or I'll tell you what, you sign now for five years, 10 years, whatever. Then, you know, we'll do a plea bargain. And the problem is that, you know, a lot of people will take the five years, take the 10 years, Mm -hmm. even though they're innocent because they don't want to gamble on a jury verdict and go to prison for the rest of their lives. So the, the choice really is five years or 80 years, which right. would you take? Yeah, which one do you want? And Whether you did it or not, don't matter. Most people can't afford a good attorney. Right. And they're going to get convicted. Right. So that is the choice. Absolutely. Um, with Brandon, he actually went to trial. Mm-hmm. He was convicted beyond a shadow of a doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable yeah, doubt. There's, there's a shadow of a doubt is much more of a stringent, you know, criteria. But it is, it's, you know, he's, he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what the, the courts say. If and that's what 2020 said when they did his story about <laughs> six months ago. You know, uh, the, the 2020 show came out on my birthday. It was like oh, May 20th. Happy birthday. I know. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. Like, I'm going to get a birthday present. We're going to talk about Brandon. And it's a two-hour show, and we were all excited about it. And then they just basically didn't really show Brandon's side of it, but just for a few minutes. Everything was all prosecution saying this. And, and then when they did, if you even look at the title of it, it's called Double Life, Double Murder. And it's like, wait a second. So you're saying from the very beginning, from the title of the of the show, that this guy, because he was being private about his sexuality, because he didn't even really know what his sexuality was at that point, he's leading a double life? So, you know, so it came at the story from that perspective, which was... And for people who haven't heard the shows that you've been on before let's tell what <laughs> let's tell the story sure. so that i mean we jumped in right at the end uh, mm-hmm. that the innocence project of texas has decided to take the case that there's an attorney who's working on the case mm-hmm. and even though there are three to nine thousand people wrongly convicted in texas who are now serving sentences mm-hmm. a very very small percentage of those are the ones that the innocence project of texas can even take up right yeah, they don't. They don't. They can't take up very many cases at at any one time. They're a small organization. Yeah, and they well, they compared to the problem. Yeah, and they they only operate on donations. So that's that's it. It's not like they get a grant from the state of Texas or anything like that. Like you have to uh, donate and support them, and you know, and people can if they're moved by Brandon's story, you can go to the Innocence Project website and actually say, you know, I'm donating this in the honor of Brandon Woodruff, and it'll go directly to his, his defense. His defense. So tell us the story. Um, this happened in 20... 2005. Five. <laughs> I know, it's so hard to think about. That all 2005, yeah, yeah, 17 years ago. Yeah, it was October of 2005. Okay, what happened? Well, you know, uh, there was a couple... There was an awesome couple, and uh, just a regular middle-class couple just living their life, living their best life. And unfortunately, they lived uh, out in Roy City, and then unfortunately they were killed in their home. And the police very quickly uh, zeroed in on Brandon, on their son, and 
from that point on, once Brandon was in their crosshairs, it was game over because they became convinced, and, and we can talk about kind of the details of the case, but during the interview with the Texas Ranger, uh, Brandon's interview with the Texas Ranger, he became convinced that Brandon was lying to him about his timeline. And once that happened, I feel like it was his sole mission to convict Brandon. Now, lying about the timeline, let, let's go through the timeline and, and, and what he was doing that night. Mm -hmm. Basically, he went home. His parents were in the middle of moving. Right. From, from uh, Heath to Roy City. To Roy City, which is about 20, 30 minutes apart. Right, right. Something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, out in Rockwall County and beyond. In Town County, yeah. Um, Brandon went home to the old home to feed the animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had dinner with his parents at like 6.30, 7 o'clock. And then after that was what was called into question. And he, yeah, he went home. Uh, to the to the original home in Heath to feed the animals and do a bunch of stuff. He had some chores that he had to do because he was in town from college because he was going to Abilene Christian University. So he was in town for the weekend and he was doing a bunch of things for his parents over at that house. So once he finished there, then he went to meet a friend at Denny's over there off of uh, LBJ and what is it? Uh, the uh, Skillman. And uh, and then he picked up his friend so there. So he went to North Dallas, mm -hmm. and they were going to... They were going to Alex Ruley's house, another friend of his, his house over in Plano, to get ready to go down to S4. And somebody going to a bar did not remember exactly what time everything happened that <laughs> night. <laughs> right. And, and that, a 19-year-old kid. A 19-year-old yeah. kid. Right. Who doesn't wear a watch. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, 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 you know, we've, since I've been doing this documentary since 2017, I've talked to many, many friends of Brandon that were like, he didn't even know what time was, you know, like, he would tell you he'd be there at five o'clock, he may call you at five o'clock and say, hey, time got away from me, I'll be there in an hour. You know, he just went, especially when he's doing things with his animals, you know, taking care of them, going to the barns, letting the horses out. When he's doing things with his animals that he loves so much, he lost track of time. And someone told me a story where he was supposed to be home for dinner at 5 o'clock, and he calls his mom at midnight and was like, hey, guys, uh, <laughs> I lost track of time. And so for the for the ranger to really call Brandon on the carpet for being a couple hours off on his time. And he told the it, ranger everywhere he went that night. He was just off a little bit on his times. It would have been more fishy for Brandon to have told the exact time because that would have been... Rehearsed. Rehearsed. Right. Which it wasn't. He was taken by surprise. Right. And he was like, I, this is where I went. And, and you know, and, and he kept telling... And this is the thing that's the most frustrating. He kept telling the ranger, I don't know what time. I can't give you an exact time. But the ranger came back and was like, okay, well, if you would have left the house at 7, then you would have been over to the Heath house. If you would have left the Roy City house at 7, you'd be over to the Roy City, City house at, or to the Heath house at 7.30. You say it took you about 30 minutes to feed the animals. You would have left by 8. So he kept giving him all these times, and Brandon's thinking to himself, okay, well, Sure, sounds good to sense. me. I, it makes sense to me. Can we get on to the to the uh, order of finding who killed my parents? <laughs> but, but you're saying that it was normal for Brandon to 
have lost track of time. So 30 minutes to feed the animals. Yeah, he could have done that. But it probably but was it, like an hour, an hour, hour and, and a half. half. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to make the, and, and this is getting into like the real details of the case, but to make things even worse, you know, he, he actually, the p friend that he picked up at Denny's, he called, the, he called him uh, ahead of time and was like, hey, what time did I pick you up at Denny's? And the guy, his name was Robert, told Brandon, I don't know, it was like 9 o'clock, something like that. So when Brandon's thinking, okay, I left the Heath house at, Ranger Collins is saying I left at 8, 8.30, I got over to Denny's at 9, makes sense to me when it turns out that Robert was the one that was off on his times. So, you know, so all these times, you know, it's not like today where you can just pick up your phone and look through Google and see, you know, see where you were at, at any given minute. So, yeah, he, he's trying to reconstruct those times and, and, you know, he just, he was just off. There's, there's no explanation other than he was just mistaken. Which brings up the phone records. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Wouldn't the phone records have told when... Right. When they called each other, even. Right. And they did have, um, they had, so, yeah, they, Brandon was screaming all the way, for, you know, as soon as he got arrested, he's screaming to his attorneys, check the phone records, check the phone records. You'll see that I was at the Heath house. For, you know, there was no way that I could have been at the Roy City house right, when they said this he was using his cell phone. Right. He was calling Robert. He was calling... Uh, his girlfriend Morgan Lee, he was calling like all these people, people were calling him, like he's going out that night, so they're all making plans, so they're calling each other for a minute, two minutes, hey, where are you at? Okay, I'll, I'm going to be 30 minutes late, okay, you know, like real quick calls just, and, and they kept happening. And it would have told where he was, right? not just that right. he made the phone call. Right. And we were able to go back and reconstruct the actual calls that he made, most of them because we had other people's phone records. Um, but Brandon's records from about 8.30 in the morning until 10.47 at night were just mysteriously missing. Nobody can find them. Nobody knows where they went. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem was that the prosecution and the investigators kept dragging their feet. And Brandon's attorneys kept going to court, making motions, saying, hey, guys, we don't have the records yet. We need the records. The prosecution would say, okay, well, we're trying to get them, blah, blah, blah. And this took months and months and months and months. Well, when they finally came up with the record, well, not, and don't forget, Brandon's sitting in jail this whole time while they're trying to do an investigation. And, you know, they finally come up with the records. They turn them over to the, pro to the defense and the defense looks through them and, and realizes, wait a second, the day of the murders, the only day that we really care about, he's got 14 hours missing in his phone records. Where are they? Well, by the time they, go, by the time they got the records, the phone companies had already deleted them. So there was no way to go back to the phone company and say, hey, guys, where's the records that are missing? And, you know, I mean, obviously it's my opinion. <laughs> I can't say this as a fact. Uh, but I think that the ranger realized when he got the records, wait a second, if, if I turn over these records, it's going to prove that Brandon was innocent because it's going to show where he was. I'm going to have to conveniently delete these rows out of this Excel file before I turn it over. Because Brandon's records, his phone records were the only ones. We were able to tell this through a forensic phone expert. 
Brandon's records were the only ones out of everybody's that was received. We got Michelle Lee, Morgan Lee, uh, Mike Etherington. We got all these phone records. Every single one of them was directly uh, authored by the phone company except for Brandon's. Brandon's records were the only ones that were authored by the marshal's office. Now, during his trial, didn't his attorney question this? They didn't know that. This this came about through uh, new f um, technology. So since then, mm -hmm. we found a, a phone records expert that was able to take the files that were given on the disk and go back and analyze them and say, wait a second, when I look at the author of this file, let's say Mike Etherington's phone records, it says the author is Verizon. But when I look at the author of Brandon's records, it says U.S. Marshal's Office. So a and Mike Etherington is one of Brandon's family's friends. He was an ex-friend that, um, that kind of inserted himself into the investigation very early on to have the police start looking at Brandon started talking about him living this double life and that he's a big liar and you can't trust a thing he says. So, of course... So, the not police, a good friend. Not a good... <laughs> that's why I say an ex-friend. <laughs> of course, he's the one that I personally believe. And, you know, luckily we still have the First Amendment so I can say what I believe. But I believe that he was one of the ones that killed Dennis and Norma Woodruff. Hmm. Um, let's go back to that 2020 piece. Um, from the very beginning they didn't seem to believe Brandon's side. It, it felt like to me. Well, like I said, for the first hour and a half, they just basically presented kind of the, uh, the good cop, bad cop technology, you know, like uh, that story of, well, here's, here's what uh, people were saying and here's what actually happened and here's what other people said and here's what the police said. So the first hour and a half was kind of like setting the story up but setting the story up through the police and investigative side. Because there, when you look at an investigation, if you look at this investigation, there's so many things that they didn't check. And there's so many things that if you look at, but you don't know the explanation for, it may look like Brandon's guilty. Now, when they called me, <laughs> I kept saying things like, look at the phone records, right. look at the murder weapons that... <laughs> Are, are not there, but we know that at least two murder weapons w were used. Correct. And if you have two murder weapons, that indicates two murderers. And we'll talk about that after the break. But when I wasn't adding to this story the way they wanted it to go, they cut the interview off and thanked me for my help. And mm -hmm. yeah, that, that was about it. Yeah, they didn't they didn't talk about Brandon's side until the like an hour and a half into it. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet. Patty and Laurent have the week off. We're talking to Scott Pogensey. He is the, what, what would you call yourself? The investigator? The um, <laughs> investigator, uh, documentarian, uh, <laughs> the person that's looking into this case. And has been uh, the champion for Brandon for the last five years. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. This is Alex Hanselka, and you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM, Dallas. And Merry Christmas. We're talking blood and murder uh, on, uh, on today's show. Um, it's just a coincidence. Uh, Scott called me. He said, ooh, there's a new update. 
uh, when's the next show that you have available? I said, Christmas. He said, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, any time, you know, I've dedicated to spreading the word about Brandon's case. So if it's, you know, if you tell me the next next time that I can talk about Brandon's case is, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, I'm going to be there. And it's nice to see somebody so dedicated uh, to somebody who has no options right now. Yeah. He's sitting in prison and has no way to to tell his story. Uh, Now, the Innocence Project of Texas has taken up his case, and that's the big news, that there's an investigator who has dedicated himself to working on the case. Right. And anybody that's that's been following Brandon's case, that, you know, we have screenings of the documentary that I'm working on all the time, and people always come up to me and they say, how can I help? Well, the biggest thing that we need right now is we need money to go to the Innocence Project of Texas, dedicated to Brandon's case, so these investigators can follow up on these leads, so they can go out and, you know, talk to people and, and what, what, what's the old gumshoe, uh, uh, ter- un- uncover all the stones, you know, whatever they got to do to get somebody, you know, I've always believed that somebody somewhere out there knows something that can help Brandon. And we just have to be able to find that person. And so right now, if you go to freebrandon.org slash donate, the very top link is a link to the Innocence Project of Texas that you can donate in Brandon's name. And, you know, any money that goes to them helps for that investigation. Helps, you know, let's say that an investigator talks to somebody and says, you know, my best friend who now lives in Wisconsin knows all about this. Well, that, that money provides them to be able to fly to Wisconsin. And, you know, so all investigations need money. Um, he, Brandon was also featured on a segment of It Couldn't Happen Here. Yeah, they... I didn't see that one. When was that on? That was on uh, a couple months ago. It's It was only on the Sundance Channel, and it streamed on AMC+. Um, but Hillary Burton Morgan, who was on uh, One Tree Hill and The Walking Dead and all that, she start she has a show that I think this is actually the second season, um, where she goes around and she talks about crimes that happen in small town America, and that's hence the name. It couldn't happen here because it's a you know small town. It couldn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Well, when they heard about Brandon's case, they contacted me and. I worked with the producers and everybody while they were here. I met Hillary, Hillary Burton Morgan. You'll see I'm talking to her in the show. Um, so she's an amazing person. And just the work that she's doing um, to, to bring light to these stories is just amazing. And she absolutely believes in Brandon's case. You can look at her social media. She talks about Brandon all the time. And, you know, just I sat down and, and talked with her for a while about this case and she I mean she almost started crying she was like I can't believe that this happens in America and yet there are three to nine thousand wrongly convicted (laughs) Texans now serving sentences conservatively estimating conservatively estimating right so um, the uh, murder weapons Mm -hmm. let's talk about that (laughs) Well, there was, they were shot and stabbed, so there was obviously a knife and a gun. And um, a small 19-year-old can <laughs> overpower two people right. 
120 pounds, soaking wet. And stab and shoot, <laughs> and he's uh, ambidextrous because... Right. <laughs> stab with one hand, shoot with, with the other. Stab with one hand, shoot with the other. Right. And... Oh, the, the prosecution's theory of what happened in this case is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, and well, that depends on which one you look at, because they sit there and one, one side of their mouth, they'll say, oh, well, this was a planned attack. Brandon was tired. He knew he, his, his two worlds were about to co collide. He's got this life where he's going to church and he's got a girlfriend and all these things where he's living a quote-unquote straight life. And then He's, he's on the 19. weekends. Yeah, and then on the weekends, he's going to the gay club, and he's got gay friends. He's got a boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. Well, he knew that these two worlds were going to collide, so he had to take care of his parents so they would not know. And But then they turn right around in trial and talk out of the other side of their mouth and say, oh, well, this was a surprise attack, and, and Dennis and Norma confronted him about his grades and about all the money that he was putting, the $3,000 that he was putting on his credit cards. And it was just a, a, a heated, in the, you know, passion moment of the, pa whatever that is, <laughs> heated so, moment. So they were just sitting there in the living room talking, and Brandon found a, a knife and <laughs> right. found a gun. Right. That's the whole point. It's like they one side they say, well, he had a knife and a gun and he hit him in a room and and he was he was going to take care of his parents, so he went and got him and came back. But then, yeah, the other side, they're like, oh, well, this was uh, uh, a surprise because they they brought up this whole thing about the being gay and, and his failing grades and he just went crazy. It's like, well, wait a second. Well, if that's the case, then. Where, where did the weapons come from? So, one thing they could prove that it was him would be the fingerprints on the gun that they certainly produced at trial. <laughs> <laughs> or the knife? No, they did not find uh, any gun that was, uh, that was related to this case. There was a 22-inch sword that they tried to say was part of this case that was, that was a murder weapon, but there are so many... Yeah, it, there are so many things about that that are just crazy like if you look at the 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 forensic pathologists you know no don't notated the uh the stab wounds and you know they were um single edge like like would be on a on a kitchen knife you know one edge is dull and the other edge is sharp so it looks more like a diamond than than anything and the sword that they produced was double edged so it would have looked more like a well, okay that one would look like a diamond the other one would look like a triangle right if it has mm. If it has one edge that's dull and one edge that's short, that would look like a triangle. Well, if you have one that looks like a diamond, then that sh shows that there's two edges. So the stab wounds were showing that it was a single-edged blade, yet they show this double-edged blade. But the Brandon had court-appointed attorneys that just didn't have the resources and the time uh, to really um, spend the time to to research all of this forensic stuff so a lot of this research happened after the trial yeah by me <laughs> when i i you know i went back and, and hired a crime scene reconstructionist i went back and and looked through the tens of thousands of pages to make sure what agreed and what didn't agree and what was contradictory and what wasn't and you know i i've just spent so much time on this case that I just wanted to make sure that I was not advocating for a person that was really guilty. 
So when I went through everything in this case and I got done with it, I was like, if this is all that they have, I can prove that Brandon is innocent. And I feel like in my documentary, I've done that. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know, it's a showstopper, right? <laughs> okay, so we know that the sword was not the knife. We know that for forensically fact, yes. What about the gun? The gun, so Brandon's girlfriend, Morgan Lee, his or her mom and her dad had a gun that was a replica, like a showpiece that was sitting on a, on a shelf in their house. Wasn't locked. It was bullets were right next to it, and the Monday after the murders, Michelle Lee, the mom, realized that this gun was missing. So she went to the police and she said, "Hey, I have this forty-five Colt long barrel, whatever it was, that's missing." And then the police were like, "Oh, well, wait a second. Dennis and Norma Woodruff were shot with a large caliber. Hmm, that must be the murder weapon." So they started putting together. Wait, okay, wait, wait, didn't they know what kind of gun he was shot with? All they could tell. Well, or so they they, they assumed that it was a revolver because there were no casings found. So the only thing they found was the slug, the thing that actually propels from the gun. And you can't tell from a slug anything other than what caliber it is. If it's a small caliber, it's going to be a small slug. If it's a large caliber, it's going to be a large caliber. So they don't know if it's a 40, 44, 45, whatever, but they know it's a large caliber. So no, they could not forensically tie that gun, which is all of a sudden missing anyways, but they couldn't tie it to this slug was, um, you know, fired from this gun or this kind of gun or anything like that. So, so they, they never just found assumed. The gun. They never found the gun. So they never tied it with fingerprints. They never tied anything. No, there was no. They never even proved that that was the gun. <laughs> so, let alone saying that that gun was fired by Brandon or whatever. And has the gun ever been found? No. Huh? It's long gone. And that's and that's so another maybe Brandon's busy keeping it hidden. Well, yeah, and that's that's another thing uh, about the sword was you know when they found this sword it was in the um, it was underneath a bunch of boxes in the barn at the Heath house, and it's like well wait a second you're telling me you know I was able to narrow down this is one of the things that I was able to do was I was able to narrow down. Even given the phone records that we do have from other people, piecing all them together, that Brandon really only had 14 minutes of quote-unquote opportunity to even commit this crime. So in order to commit the crime, he's got to shoot both of his parents, stab both of his parents, go to the bathroom, change clothes, take a shower, clean up the bathroom. I mean, just all this stuff that he would have had to have done and then now wait a second you're going to add that in that time he went into the barn and moved like 50 boxes so he could put the knife on the bottom box and then put those 50 boxes back on top like it, it just makes no sense what the prosecution is trying to say that he did well this gets us to the Christmassy part of the story. <laughs> um, one of the things that you skipped over a little bit was he had to go to the bathroom and clean the bathroom up. Mm -hmm. if, if the parents were killed in the living room, why did he have to clean the bathroom up? Right. So, you could, so when the investigators were taking pictures and looking at everything, they saw that there was blood dripping all the way from the couch where the two were found dead 
all the way to the guest bathroom. So either A, you believe that the murder weapon or the person's clothes or whatever was dripping blood just magically stopped dripping blood as soon as you hit the threshold of the bathroom, or they drip blood all over the place, got blood all over the place, and then spent a significant amount of time cleaning it up because the police were never able to find any blood in that bathroom. So somebody cleaned that bathroom extensively for a long period of time because blood is hard to... Okay, and we know that Brandon uh, made it from... Rock in the, from uh, Roy City. Roy City back to Heath, right? Which takes twenty to thirty minutes, right? Especially then the roads were not what they yeah, are. Yeah, they were under construction. They were under construction, and, yeah. so w- probably more like thirty minutes to get right. back to Heath. Um, he fed the animals, mm-hmm. and the prosecution didn't disagree with the timeline that he was over there at seven thirty. Um. They did, because if he would have, at no, at 7.30, no. But they say, that I guess, that he drove back to Roy City. And that's the whole point, is that if we could prove, there's, a, there's an 8.41 phone call that Brandon makes with his, um, or 9.41, no, sorry, 9.41. There's a 9.41 call that Brandon makes with his girlfriend, and he was at the Heath house when he made that. And if we could prove that he was at the Heath house when that call was made, there's no time for him to drive to Roy City and then drive back to Heath because there was a neighbor that saw Brandon after 10 o'clock. And he knows it was after 10 o'clock because it was after the 10 p.m. news started. So we know that Brandon was at that house after 10 o'clock. So if if, if we could prove that Brandon was at the Heath house when that 941 call was made then there would literally be zero time for him to drive to Roy City commit these murders and come back and be seen by the neighbor and then drive to Denny's by the time that he arrived there so that's what I believe that Ranger Collins realized that when he got Brandon's phone records and he was like holy crap Brandon was at the Heath house on this 941 call the biggest part and the reason you know I don't just go around accusing Texas Rangers of being corrupt but the problem was that Brandon had already been in in jail for six months before they got these phone records so he would either have to a conveniently lose that call or B admit that he arrested somebody and kept them in jail for six months that was completely innocent so now, what would you do? Uh, I'd accuse him of having gone back the next morning to clean up. Is that a possibility? No, because he went to the club. He went to S4 that night with you know three other friends. They hung out at the club. They went back to Alex's house in Plano, dropped them off. And then Brandon and his friend from college, Robert, drove back to Abilene Christian that day. So, or that morning. So, from the time that Brandon picks up Robert at the Denny's that night, that Sunday night, he has an alibi all the way through when they were murdered. So, there's no way that he could have done that. So, he went to Abilene Christian, and of course... A very accepting school of gay people. I I was just going to (laughs) say. So, the only double life he was really leading had to do with Abilene Christian. And, you know... he. as 
I'm assuming most of your <laughs> listeners know, you know, when you're coming out, you have to really decide who am I going to tell, who am I not going to tell. And it's, it has nothing to do with being ashamed of who you are. It has more to do with how are they going to react and how important is this person to my life. So that's one of the reasons that obviously a lot of people have a struggle with their parents is because they're very important to their life. And they're thinking, well, God, if I tell my parents and they kick me out and they never talk to me again, it would be a lot easier just to not tell them. And then eventually, you know, it, it becomes to the point where you, you, being yourself becomes more important than what people are going to think. But Brandon was still going through that process. And for the prosecution to demonize his n very natural coming out process was just abhorrent. Um, is it possible that Brandon actually had told his parents? Yes, absolutely. In fact, Br Brandon had a... Uh, a boyfriend of sorts. I mean, I don't know how, <laughs> how much you can have a, a steady boyfriend at 19, but I guess some people do. But, uh, but he was, Brandon was a very, um, you know, happy-go-lucky kid. He really never, he, he was definitely, he was definitely, let's say, playing the field, I guess, at, at 19. But he did have a guy, an older guy, that he uh, was going out with. And that guy um, had called the house and talked to Brandon's dad. And, you know, he was able to say, he told the, <laughs> this is another crazy, he told the investigators that Brandon's dad knew that he was his boyfriend. Now, we don't know whether or not his mom knew, but we do know that there is this testimony that his, that his dad knew. Um, but, the pro but the defense, unfortunately, made a very concerted effort to, quote unquote, not talk about the gay thing because they were out in Hunt County and they didn't want to bring it up because they felt like the more that they would bring it up, the more that it would alienate the jurors. You know, of course, me being Monday morning quarterback, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't you just parade 50 gay people up there to say, yes, this was a natural coming out process for mm -hmm. me. And then the next person, yes, this was very natural. The next person, this is very natural. But they just didn't want to talk about the quote-unquote gay thing. So they never brought this guy to show that. Why don't we take a break and... But I'm too heated. <laughs> and let's, I, exactly. This case is exasperating. I'm very passionate about it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about our, coming, our own coming out experiences. And if you come out to everybody at the same minute, I don't know that that's possible. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet, and we'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Candy Markham, and I listen to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. Listen. And this is Lambda Weekly, and we're talking about the Brandon Woodruff case. Um, Brandon's case has been picked up by the Innocence Project of Texas. Innocence Project has uh, gotten the exoneration of 27 people in its about 15-year history. Uh, unfortunately, the estimate is there are three to 9,000 people who are estimated to be wrongly convicted in Texas and are serving sentences. And that number would include people who took a plea bargain rather than go to trial and get an even worse sentence. Right. 
Yeah, they say that only only five percent of cases actually go to trial. Um, but Brandon certainly did. Yes, most people, when when they are innocent, I would say most, but you know, except for the case that we talked about earlier, where it's like, well, do you want five years mm -hmm. or a hundred years? Um, but most people, when you know, a, at least on the surface, they would say, well, if I'm innocent, I'm not taking a plea. You know, and most people, until they're in that situation, um, they don't really know what they would do. But Brandon absolutely was like, no, I'm not taking a plea. I didn't do this. And, and so he went to trial. He went to trial. I would hope now that the attitude would be different, even in more rural parts of Texas, that we can talk about what it's like to come out. Um, Jeremy's here in the studio with us. Jeremy, did you come out to everybody at the, at once, <laughs> at the same time? No, of course not. Um, at the time, but even when I came out to my parents, I mean, they, they told me that they already knew, but... <laughs> well, and in your case, a special circumstance. Was your mom out yet? No. My mom lived many years looking looking back in time um, I kind of understand now why she did she was the way she was but she wasn't doing anything wrong or bad but she my mom has now uh, been with her partner she's female for over 20 years longer than she was with my dad but she was trying to do the right thing by sticking with the family and you know raising the kids and whatnot but she was going so even so at an older age she came out to different people at different times right you came out to different people. At I came out to different people at different times. You never know how anyone's going to react to, to that. So, yeah. I mean, I didn't have a radio show to go on the air and say, "Hey, <laughs> I'm gay." For everybody listening, here I am. It's a lot easier now than it was even back then because it's already been sure yeah. thirty years ago for me, which is hard to believe. Yeah. And you know, and I'm gonna. I always tell this story whenever, ever, when any, whenever anyone asks me about my coming out. I was working, my very first job was Domino's Pizza, and I was, I was 18, 19 years old, and I met a guy, I, 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 I'm assuming there's a lot of Mason Coxes out there, so I'm not going, I don't think it would be bad to say his name, plus he's probably dead now, but, um, but I was 18, 19 years old, and I worked with this guy, his name was Mason, and he was 55 years old, and he just came out. He was. He had a family, had kids, um, and he just came out and just got with his boyfriend at the time. And I thought to myself, you know, 18, 19 year old kid, I thought to myself, how sad is that, that he had to live his whole life with this secret? And it probably tortured him every single day. And I decided right then and there, I was like, I'm not going to do it. That's not going to be me. So at my wedding, my, <laughs> my cousins, my aunt, they were all there. And mm -hmm. before we went into uh, the theater, because we were married at a Turtle Creek Chorale concert, for anybody who hasn't heard this story before. <laughs> I haven't. But uh, before we went in, you know, I'm saying hello to all of our guests. And I went over to my cousins and I said, oh, by the way, I don't know that I've ever come out to you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And they all just started laughing. They said, David, we grew up with you. Uh, it, it wasn't a surprise. Yeah. And, that, and I was just telling Jeremy on, off the air, I said, you know, that's, that's the thing about Brandon was, you know, well, there's some kids that you can tell, you know, 12, 13 years old. You see him on TikTok, all this stuff. Like, 
you can just tell, okay, this kid's going to be gay when he grows up, or is Nick is gay now, but is not going to have a problem coming out when he's later, uh, coming out when he's older. But Brandon was not that guy. You know, he was still hanging around with all the cowboys, and he was still, um, you know, up until a few months before this, the murders happened, he was still the one that was, you know, wearing the cowboy boots and the cowboy hat and hanging out with all these guys. And it wasn't until, you know, just a few months before the murders happened that he finally started uh, going to the gay clubs and started wearing Armani and, you know, started doing the things that people kind of then started looking and was like, wait a second, he's, he's no longer this, you know, rural, redneck, cowboy guy. Like, he's starting to change a little bit. And everybody kind of knew but didn't really know and you know i mean well, it was plus he's going to abilene christian university right. cannot say anything he would have been expelled if they knew yes absolutely i mean that's still that's their policy the yeah i mean it's still their policy right so um if he's keeping it from anybody he's keeping it from people at his school right and that was one of the things that you know there was a um there was a story that the prosecution liked to bring up that brandon had a bag and in his truck and they, when they were driving back from the club to Alex Ruley's house um, they, the, the two in the back it was James and, and Alex in the back picked up the bag and started going through it and we're like oh what's in here and what's in here and Brandon freaked out and he was like hey leave the bag alone like he was very not even joking around about it he's like do not go through that bag and in Alex's interview and in James's interview, the, um, you know, the ranger asked him about, like, what, what was that all about? And, uh, you know, it's kind of weird that Brandon's, you know, the night his parents are murdered, he's freaking out about you going through his bag. Well, of course, they're trying to insinuate, insinuate that the murder weapon was in there. Um, but it turns out that it was just because Brandon had some gay porn in there. And if... Robert, the guy that he was, you know, that was in the front seat that was that he was going back to school with that he didn't re even really know that well. They were just drove into town because Robert's girlfriend lived in Denton, so they just carpooled. If he would have seen that gay porn and told anybody at school, yeah, he would have been expelled. So I'd be freaking out about that too. Not because there's a bloody knife and a bloody gun in there, but because <laughs> but there was in there. <laughs> did, did anybody find a, a sword? No, and they found that, and they, they, the Texas Rangers seized that bag and did a d DNA analysis. No DNA in there, no blood, no nothing. But it did not stop them from insinuating at trial that Brandon had a murder weapon in there. It, it was just the, and we haven't even talked about the Sixth Amendment violation yet. Like that. Oh. <laughs> Yes. Another news. First other of all, news. explain what the Sixth Amendment is. All right. So the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution says that every person has a right to a fair trial and to counsel with their attorney in private without the prosecution listening in. And unfortunately, Brandon's uh, phone calls between his attorney and, his, and, and him while he was in jail... Uh, were directed to be recorded and turned over to the prosecutors. And the judge ruled that there was a Sixth Amendment violation but did not dismiss the charges. So it's not surprising that the phone calls would have been recorded. Right. Because jailhouse conversations, phone conversations are all recorded. Right. Okay. Um, what is 
the violation, though, is that it was directed that those phone conversations be turned over. So it was not accidental that the prosecution overheard a conversation, right? which also could happen, but is a violation. Well, it, the, the outgoing message says that the phone call is being recorded for security purposes only. So he's, you know, unless he's a threat, unless he's burn, you know, threatening to burn down the jail or whatever, um, there's no expectation that these calls would ever be turned over to anyone, let alone the prosecution who's going to be sitting there listening to his trial strategy. You know, they're sitting there talking about witnesses and what they're going to do with this witness and how they're going to talk about this witness and what this witness is going to say. And the prosecution's literally listening to all these calls. They, the and prosecutor, yeah, the prosecutor took 43 pages of notes. And then the, uh, when all of this was brought out, the Hunt County prosecutors were recused and they brought in special prosecutors from the Attorney General's office. Uh, but they still used a lot of the investigation that the original DA's office used. So the judge's ruling was that there was actually a violation of his Sixth Amendment rights. Right. But we're not going to do anything about it? The, what they did was they basically said, <laughs> and this is another, you know, we, we might have to get an attorney on here one time to talk about this, but basically it comes down to the judge said, okay, the prosecution cannot use anything that was learned in these calls. And the defense was like, okay, well, let us listen to the calls and let us see the notes that the prosecution took. And the judge said no. So it's like, wait a second. We, we, they can't use anything that was learned in the calls, but you're not going to let us listen to the calls to find out what was said. <laughs> like, Does Brandon remember what was yeah. said in the calls? Yeah, it was all, it was, I think the prosecution was hoping that Brandon would say, okay, guys, the murder weapon is behind the dumpster and the 7-Eleven, you know. But and all and it, I get that, but that but all it was was just trial strategy, talking about witnesses, mm -hmm. you know what they were going to say, and they used the prosecution used some of those because when they started talking about Morgan and Michelle Lee, his girlfriend and her mom, you know Brandon told his attorneys the way it was, you know, like Morgan probably slept around and 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 Michelle probably didn't like me as much as she said she did. I mean, he was real honest with his attorneys, and the prosecution took those calls, played them for the Lees, and then tried to turn them against him. So anyone that was an ally of Brandon's, they, they tried to, to corrupt him with those calls. Right, because when you're doing trial strategy, either the person is completely f with you or completely against you, or somewhere in the middle, and this is what we have to look out for, which can turn the person against you right if they knew exactly what right <laughs> how often do these kinds of violations come up luckily not very often but there was established case law um, that said that the you know there were there were differing opinions around all the federal circuit courts around the country some courts were saying well you have to prove that you were harmed some courts were saying well it's an automatic dismissal some courts were saying, well, the prosecution has to prove that you weren't harmed. So there's all these differing opinions without going into the, the legal side of it, but there's all these differing opinions all around the country, and that's why we were hoping that when we appealed to the United States Supreme Court that they would take up the case so they could make a ruling to say, no, this is the way that it should be all over the country. It's not fair 
that the case is not dismissed in Texas because you're under the Southern District when in the Western District in California it would be dismissed. So, but unfortunately the Supreme Court did not take up the case, so we still have all these differing opinions that are case law. Unfortunately. <laughs> so. And. And I hate getting into the legal side of it so much, but, you know, I do, I, I definitely feel like after, you know, all the, um, studying that I've done of this case, especially for the podcast, you know, I did the American Justice podcast, um, 28 episodes on this case. So if anybody wants to know uh, the details of this case, you want to know everything about Brandon's sister and how crazy she was and all this, all the crazy things that she did, you want to know all about Mike Etherington and Joe Hageman, the two that we believe were involved in the crimes, if you want to know anything about that, just go to AmericanJustice.com, or excuse me, AmericanJusticePodcast.com, or you can search for American Justice Podcast on any of your podcast apps. If you only knew. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's just so much to this case, and it, it, there's no way that, you know, ABC could cover it in two hours. There's no way that Hillary Burton Morgan could cover it in one hour. Um, I, you know, I feel like I did an adequate job uh, in 28 hours <laughs> of covering it on the podcast, but, you know, there's just so many details. And we're pretty much out of time, but um, just quickly, who do we think did it? You, you said you mentioned Mike Etherington. Right. But two weapons indicates two people, so who else? I think that his, uh, his other friend, Joe Hageman, was involved in it. Uh, you know, Mike was kind of the... Uh, uh, the leader of the group and Joe was kind of the lackey and um, I think his mom probably helped a little bit in covering it up or cleaning up the crime scene but um, there's a lot to to go into when you start saying those kinds of things but just to sum it up um, that's who I think did it and you know and this and one of the things about Mike Etherington the thing that makes him look so guilty is you know him and his mom inserted themselves into the investigation and we didn't talk about this I think we talked about it one time but his mom called the sheriff's department and uh, before that it had even been turned over that it was a murder nobody knew that it was a murder the police were on their way back from the autopsy this is how early on and this is the day after the bodies were found and Mike's mom asked the police officers do you have any suspects? And the obvious question is, well, what do you mean suspects? Why, what makes you think that this is a murder? Nobody's been told this was a murder. It could have been a, you know, at this point, the day after the bodies were found, could have been a carbon monoxide poisoning. Could have been all Food kinds poisoning. of things. Yeah, could have been a murder-suicide. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but she's calling the sheriffs. Ask, you know, so there's just so many of these little... I'll just give you one. I know we're almost out of time. I'll give you another one real quick. Um, Mike Etherington, during his uh, talk with the Texas Ranger, he says to the Texas Ranger, he says, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate that now this computer is missing. And it's like, wait a second, what do you mean a computer is missing? Nobody, the, the police never knew that a computer was missing. The, um, the family never knew a computer was missing. Who knew that there was a computer missing from this capital murder crime scene other than the people that killed these two people? So, you know, there's just so many things that, that these guys did that were so suspicious. 
Scott, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Anytime you want to have me on for Christmas to talk about murder and mayhem, just let me know. Okay, we'll <laughs> plan that for next Christmas again. <laughs> for all of us here at Lambda Weekly, have a Merry Christmas and have a Happy New Year. We'll be back next week with our year in review show. <laughs>